Good morning. Today's reading is from Isaiah 54, verses 11 through 17. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony. I will lay your foundations in, with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression, for you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I have created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed. And you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord, and their vindication from me, declares the Lord. Please be seated. Thanks, Kanu. Good morning, church. It's such a joy to be with you all. If we haven't met, my name's Tyler. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, I have apparently a shirt about me now, and so if you are one of the lucky ones, or in my opinion, unlucky ones, to get to wear that, you're welcome. Uh, I had nothing to do with it. So, uh, if you're new here, or I just want to say a word too, if if you're if you've been coming here for a while, but you're just not feeling very connected here, I just want you to know when we use words like church family. We're expressing our hope. We hope this is a family for you. And if it's not, we would love to help do whatever we can for that. A lot of that getting connected thing is, unfortunately, on you to reach out, get out there, come to stuff, get involved, and and things like that. But we really want this to be a church family for you. And I know for many of us, it really truly is. So uh, I'm just, I'm thankful for you all. So. All right, so today, oh, I should mention, Pastor Frank is on vacation, so if you think of it, please pray that he would be on vacation and rest well. He's a very disciplined guy, if you know him. Uh, My prayer for him this last week is that he'd be just as disciplined about resting well, so I really hope, I really hope he's enjoying his time, so pray for him if you think of it this week. So today, I'd like us to walk through this chapter together. And see what God and his word have to say to us. And one of the things I hope becomes clear to you, as it became clear to me, is that we, Christians, are to begin joyfully preparing for our future. We are to begin living now as if our glorious future is near, coming soon, and we're to do it joyfully. God says, no matter what you see on the horizon, I see a bright future for you, Christian." And these 16 chapters, as just a reminder for us in this series, these 16 chapters, 40 through 55, we're getting close to the end here. These are the very center, the heart of this incredible book in the Old Testament, Isaiah. In this section, we find both poetry and prophecy, and we see a glimpse into the future reality for God's people. That as God's people are heading into exile in Babylon, that discipline is coming, yes, and is here, yes, but restoration's coming too. That God is protecting the very ones he's disciplining. He's with them in the midst of the discipline. So with those things said, before we read, let me pray for us. I know we, we pray a lot as a church, but I'm not going to apologize for that. All right, let's pray. Uh, God, we need your spirit to show us this text. God, awaken our hearts to the reality and the depth here. There's so much in these words. And so, God, help me to be faithful and clear in what I communicate. God, anything that's good in here is because it's in your word. Let that be true, Lord. Anything that's not from you or your word, let it be forgotten, tossed aside. God, it's your word that's truth and beauty. Lord, 
I humbly and boldly ask that you would help me to communicate that beauty and that truth. Uh, Lord, we love you. We're so thankful for your word. I'm thankful for each and every person who made the time to come here this morning to worship together as a body, to learn from your word. So humble and so thankful. Lord, would you bless uh, the efforts of this people this morning? God, unite us together as one as we study your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Isaiah 54, verses 1 through 3. Let's read it together. Sing, O barren one, who did not bear. Break forth into singing and cry aloud, you who have not been in labor. For the children of the desolate one will be more than the children of her who is married, says the Lord. Enlarge the place of your tent, and let the curtains of your habitations be stretched out. Do not hold back. Lengthen your cords and strengthen your stakes. For you will spread abroad to the right and to the left, and your offspring will possess the nations and will people the desolate cities. That very first word, the very first word, sing, is a call for joyful, exuberant singing. But who's he calling to sing? An unmarried woman, we'll, we'll learn that in the next verses, who's barren. A barren woman, unable to have children. Kind of a bizarre thing to say, right? Especially in that culture where marriage and family were much more a means of survival and status than today. And if that sounds as bizarre to you as it did to me, remember, God's speaking here to a people more than a person. There might be someone specific Isaiah had in mind, as he's writing this, but through God's word, he's writing to a people, not a person. This is a people of God who have not been faithful to God over and over. They have not been a light to the nations like they should. Their family hasn't grown. It's actually shrunk. It shrunk down. This is the people of Israel, God's covenant people, his bride, who have responded to God's revelation, intervention, special working, with an apathetic yawn. A people whose heritage is now one of repeatedly ignoring God, ignoring God's commands as if they don't matter at all for them personally. They are spiritually barren, failing over and over to keep God's word. And that people is being called here to sing. Why? What reason would they have to sing? Because now, verses 2 and 3, your family is about to grow. Your family is going to grow anywhere, anyway. And more than that, it's going to grow more than if you had been faithful this whole time. In other words, God is going to see to it that his covenant to you is fulfilled through you, despite you. Despite your apathy. Despite your lack of faith, God's promises are still going to hold true. That is a a radical thing to read and to understand. Now, this covenant, this covenantal language is really big for Christians. It's kind of everything for Christians, this covenant, this idea. It's referring back to immediately uh, Isaiah 42, 6, where this covenant is first mentioned here. But ultimately, back to Genesis 12, Genesis 17. But Isaiah 42 says this, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light to the nations. That's the covenant. So get your house ready. Expand your walls. Do it now because your family is going to grow. Notice the faith that's being asked of this barren woman. In the midst of this family that never happened, these hopes and dreams that fell short, God's saying, build your house, get ready, because it's about to be full, fuller than you can imagine. It kind of reminds me of Noah, right? Who built, who built the ark, even though a storm like that had never happened before. He's ridiculed for it, but he trusted God more than what he saw around him. He obeyed God, just like this barren woman's being asked to do. Now, there's some language in verse 3 that's worth noting here, too. Your offspring will possess the nations. 
Now, that word might sound like ownership of some kind. That, that might be kind of weird for us as Americans to kind of read that word. But this is more like displace, if that helps, or dispossess, which is actually full of meaning. So think about it. These nations around you, in the vicinity immediately around you, the ones that have conquered you, enslaved you, are now going to be displaced by you. That's a pretty cool picture of the flourishing that God's talking about. Your borders are going to expand. You, it says, will people the desolate cities. That's not a verb you hear too much, right? To people. That verb to people means occupy, dwell, settle, in even the desolate, faraway cities, all the way over to the most desolate place they could have imagined, Phoenix, Arizona. Think about it for a second. This is literally true, and you know this if you live by one of our many Jewish communities here. They are literally spread all over to the most desolate areas. And of course, this part of his inheritance is for us as well through Christ, and praise God for that. Think about Isaiah and the people of God at that time. They could have never imagined the kind of work that God had in mind. For us, however many years later, to read this same text, their minds would have been blown to think about us today, in this context, in this time, in this place, reading these words. Think of how you and I are an answer to God's faithfulness in this. That's mind-blowing. Their minds would have been blown. We are part of the promise of God to spread to the desolate places. So God says, get ready. Sing out with joy. Your home's about to grow. He continues in verses 4 through 8. Fear not, for you will not be ashamed. Be not confounded, for you will not be disgraced. For you will forget the shame of your youth and the reproach of your widowhood. You will remember no more. For your maker is your husband. The Lord of hosts is his name. And the Holy One of Israel is your Redeemer. The God of the whole earth he is called. For the Lord has called you like a wife deserted and grieved in spirit. Like a wife of youth when she's cast off, says your God. For a brief moment, I deserted you. But with great compassion, I will gather you. In overflowing anger for a moment, I hid my face from you. But with everlasting joy or everlasting love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. God says, don't be afraid. Your husband is, in fact, God himself. Now, if being barren was a shame in the ancient Near East cultures, being barren and a widow was certainly disgraced, looked down upon. You have to remember, we're reading an ancient text here. Our culture defines those things very differently today. But to the nations, they looked at the God of Israel with derision. They laughed and mocked at this God because of his apparent lack of power to save his people. As they see his people who claim his name enslaved, oppressed, of course they look at that and go, what kind of God is this? Not very powerful. Look again at uh, verse 5. God says later, you're going to forget. Not only are you not going to be ashamed or disgraced anymore, you're going to forget about this whole thing because of what I have in store for you, which is a a big promise. And verse 5, your maker Capital M. Every translation that I read has that capital M in there. This is the maker of makers. The text is very clear here. The maker of all makers is your husband. This is a title of the Lord, the maker. Capital M, the maker. There's more titles given, the Lord of hosts. And Christians, as we read this text, we probably skip right over it without really thinking of what's going on here. This is a title of the Lord that's a really significant one. This is a name of God, meaning he is the leader of the armies of God. This is an army that you do not want to be on the wrong side of. And God, as he's saying here, I'm the leader of that army. He says, I'm the holy one. Think about that for a sec. There is no one like him. 
And he's divine. This name has a divine title attached to it. He's the God of, of the whole earth. He's called the God of the whole earth. Think about, just for a second, I know it's basic, but think about the scale of the whole earth. It's easier for us, we can picture the whole earth, but, but them at the time, they had no concept how big this earth was. And we can see that, but, but think about it. As I'm flying in yesterday, I'm flying in and looking over the parts of our state that are not developed at all and thinking, this place is huge. It's huge. And you fly into Phoenix even and go, this is huge. The God of the whole earth. This is your God. It's like that, it's a little bit like that schoolyard brag. My dad can beat up your dad. I don't know if you said that in, in, in school, but I did. And at the time, I was thinking of my biological father, who's a construction guy, a little bit bigger. Uh, not my stepdad, who's a, a small, a scrappy British fellow. Um, but this is, this is my husband can beat up your husband. My God can beat up your God. And even if my wife and kids can't, can't rightfully claim that, we can all claim, we can all claim our God. There's none like him. There's none like him. My God can beat up your God. Their exile and in Babylon felt like a divorce. Have you ever thought about that? What they must have felt like? It must have felt like a separation at least. But God is declaring himself their maker, husband, and redeemer. He has not left them. He hasn't. This isn't some emotional appeal from a fawning boyfriend. God's defining in no uncertain terms who he is, reminding them exactly who their redeemer is. And here we see in verse 7 that this all-powerful God with all these titles now slows down. Look at the language in 7. Draws in close, tenderly speaks a word of healing to his people. It's almost like you can feel him almost putting his arm around his people. And by the way, when we read verse 7, did we just read that God admitted to deserting his people? We should talk about that. That, that could be hard for us to navigate. God's admitting here, yeah, I deserted you. That could be hard to read. Now, these verses are challenging. Verses like this are challenging, but, but these are easily understood. And I just want to give a quick aside here about God's word. I hear often these days from people in my circle struggling to know God's word is true and good. To know it with confidence. If this person over here says, no, this verse means this and I'm sure of it. But then this person over here says, no, 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 no. That verse means this and I'm sure of it. Then it makes sense. Why you might be sitting here going, well, how do I know with any confidence what's, what's being said and what's true? And if that's true of this, could we just interpret the whole Bible any way we want? How do we know? I just want to say that makes sense. It makes sense. But just because certain texts are difficult to know doesn't mean they're impossible. And by the way, our feelings about truth are a terrible judge. They really are. What we feel is true is not a great compass for us. But this kind of thinking is a barrier to faith for some. And, and for many, even those in the faith, this is a barrier. This is a challenge. Now, my goal here, I can't, in a sermon aside, give an exhaustive process here. But I just want to give you some reminders as you read God's word to hopefully increase your confidence in what you're reading. To not believe the lies that just because some texts are debated means other texts are open for broad interpretation. The Bible's misuse doesn't negate its use. So, some guiding principles for the truth of God's word. One, we believe God is a supernatural being. We have to remember that first. And that God, as a supernatural being, is able to, and I believe has, supernaturally secured the Bible as we know and have it today. This collection that we have... This incredible text is gathered by a covenantal God who wants you to know these things about him and ourselves. That this is all we need, and it's true, and it's worth obeying. Next, the Bible was written to be understood and can 
be understood by the general population. Some verses in there to dig deeper into if this is a question you have. And, and the Deuteronomy 6 one is, is simply the call to teach scripture to your kids, assuming your kids can understand what's being taught. Three, the Bible makes the, makes the simple wise. Its general sense is obvious, even if its deeper meanings remain hidden. Does that make sense? Four, Jesus himself thinks that the Bible was, was able to be understood. He even rebukes those who misinterpreted. You remember some of those stories? Some of those are listed up here for you to look at. And notice, as you read those, the blame for failing to understand is always on the reader, not the scriptures. Always. Those stories where Jesus goes, haven't you read? Don't you understand? Haven't you even figured this out yet? You never hear Jesus saying, yeah, you know, that is confusing. You're right. I, you know what? I, after I think about it, I should have written that different. I see that now. <laughs> you never hear him say that, right? He says, don't you get it? You've read it, right? So five, many people have spent a lifetime mining the deeper depths of the Bible. And I don't think we've found the bottom of it yet. Think of the millions of pages that have been written interpreting and applying the pages that we hold in our hands. I think that's a pretty compelling answer to the question of why. Why are some texts harder to understand than others? I think we're meant to wrestle with it. We're meant to, to take it and think deeply about it. That, that's part of the, the, the beautiful design here. And lastly, of course, the Spirit of God helps us interpret and understand God's Word. A couple verses to encourage you there. Remember, though, that the Spirit's revelation will always line up with the whole of Scripture. The Spirit is the author of Scripture. He's not going to give you some random word that you feel is true. That, that's not the Spirit. That's how you know. Scripture itself is the test of, of the Spirit. This also means that non-Christians will struggle. They will struggle to understand the deeper meanings of Scripture. And if they come to you with a difficult passage and they're confused by it, it makes sense. The Spirit in them speaks to that truth. And study tools, of course, those are helpful for context, deeper meaning, but they're not necessary for comprehension. If you would have spent as much time as I did in the last week or two studying this passage, you would find these same things too. You would. Now, God has given me a brain that thinks a certain way, and there's that. But you would find those things as well. That's my point. So prayer is the main tool for interpreting God's word, for discerning the truth. Prayer is the main tool. And ask your favorite pastor what tools they like whether it's commentaries or, or whatever, ask them what tools they like, but I bet you all of them have prayer. Uh, coffee is a great tool for studying scripture. No, but I bet they all have prayer and discernment from the Spirit as a major tool as they study God's word. So, scripture is able to be understood, and its truths are available, and we can know them. We can. We can do it with confidence. So I hope that little aside was encouraging. So then what does it mean then when God, that God deserted his people? We need to deal with this. That doesn't seem to line up with the rest of what we know to be true about God. Well, one, remember, this desertion was actually a discipline for God's people for their continual rebellion towards him. And like any good parent knows, discipline is meant to redirect the heart back towards life and away from harm. That's what discipline is. It's a redirection away from harm and towards life. This exile was judgment, not neglect. That's important. This desertion is not like neglect. It's judgment. His desertion was him removing his favor and protection, allowing Babylon to enter in and conquer. Verse 8 tells us that he hid his face for a time kind of shows us, reminds us how important God's favor on us really is. I, I tend to take that for granted, but maybe we ought to pray more 
that God's favor would rest on this family right here. God, give us your favor. Don't remove your favor from us. If that's all that separates us from destruction, we should seek to live within that. Now, I want to illustrate this idea of God deserting his people with a story. There was a man who showed up to the church once. He pulled up, kind of parked half on the patio in a Maserati, which is interesting. He comes in and starts talking to me. Eventually, I rope in Pastor Trey. We're both talking to him for hours. He admitted he was drunk at the time and was high on meth at the time. Drove here somehow. We were able to to get his keys. Thankfully, he let us have his keys. He didn't drive away. But we were trying to think, okay, so what do we do with this guy? Uh, If you've ever interacted with people that are sort of in a manic state, it can be really hard to navigate some of the ways their mind is working in that moment. But we were thinking, okay, so we need to get him some help. We need him to detox. We were able to eventually get him into a place in Scottsdale that was able to give him transport over there and help him. And so we had a Maserati parked in our parking lot for two weeks, which was interesting. Uh, But one of the things that happened in the midst of that is we're trying to figure out what to do with him. He calls his mom on speakerphone. Trey and I are there. He's talking to his mom. He says, Mom, I'm I'm in a tough spot. I need you to come pick me up and take me to this, this place. And his mom, in the moment, says, no, I'm, I'm not going to help you. Now, you, you could look at that and go, well, the mom's deserting him. Come on. He, that, that was his feeling in the moment, too. As we were sitting there, it was, it was hard to see. He's like, you're my mom. Why? What? You're not going to come? But if you've interacted with an addict in this way, you know exactly what that mom was doing right there. That actually was love right there in that moment. For the one time she's saying no here, there's probably been a hundred times that she said yes. Okay, I'm coming. I'll help you. That's a hard thing, but God didn't desert his people. It's more like this mom. He turned them over to the choices they made. Desertion, but not neglect. Not a lack of love, but actually an act of love. Painful. Yes. But I bet that mom felt some pain as well, don't you think? Don't you think that God, as he disciplined his people, felt some of that same pain that that mother felt? Like I tell my kids all the time after any kind of discipline, why does daddy discipline you? Because I love you and you're my child. That's why. God's discipline doesn't cancel his covenant. It doesn't. Psalm 30, verse 5 says, God's anger is but for a moment, but his favor is for a lifetime. That's that's the perspective here. The book of Isaiah commentary says it like this. Anger may describe his condition for a period of time, but love describes his unchanging essence. So helpful to remember that that love is actually who God is. And it's his love that motivated this desertion, this discipline. So although God's discipline was for a moment, his covenant remains forever. That's what he's reminding them of. Don't forget, you and me are in covenant. Nothing's changed there. God continues his covenantal language in our next verses. Let's read 9 through 10. God says, this is like the days of Noah to me, as I swore that the waters of Noah should no more go over the earth. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you and will not rebuke you. For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you. And my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. The barren woman, the forsaken wife, Israel, should have faith like Noah to act based solely on God's promises. And God says explicitly, I'm making that same kind of covenant I made to Noah not to destroy you anymore now. He says, look at the hills. Look at the mountains. See how solid they look? My promise to you is more solid than that. That's the point. Picture the most solid thing you can imagine and trust that God's promises are more secure than that being moved. And this covenant of peace, this is important. This is an Ezekiel 34 language that's actually being renewed here. This covenant of peace will apparently be secured through a city. 
Let's read on, 11 through 13. O afflicted one, storm-tossed and not comforted, behold, I will set your stones in antimony and will lay your foundations with sapphires. I will make your pinnacles of agate, agate, your gates of carbuncles, and all your wall of precious stones. All your children shall be taught by the Lord, and great shall be the peace of your children. You think your backyard is nice, right? You got any foundations of sapphires back there? I doubt it. How about your pinnacles? How are they looking? Are they made of rubies? I don't think so. This is the kind of city that is both a fortress and a beauty for all to see. Bragging about the extravagant love of their God. It points us ahead to Revelation 21, where the eternal city of God comes down to dwell with men. And it is a beautiful city like this. To say the word beauty doesn't even begin to describe it. We're going to be studying Revelation actually later in the fall, so get, get excited for that. This is a wonderful promise. And think for a minute of how God's people would have heard this. Picture where they were, scattered, their cities destroyed. Think of the hope that would have sparked in them to go, wow, we're going to have that kind of place? Not just a temple, but a, made of rubies and precious stones. A beautiful city that is led by God with children instructed by God himself. Like this picture of Jesus with the kids coming to him, eager to be taught by him. Oh, what a wonderful image. The imagery continues in verse 14. From the beauty of the city to the blessedness of his inhabitants. Let's read 14 through 17. In righteousness you shall be established. You shall be far from oppression. For you shall not fear, and from terror, for it shall not come near you. If anyone stirs up strife, it is not from me. Whoever stirs up strife with you shall fall because of you. Behold, I have created the smith who blows the fire of coals and produces a weapon for its purpose. I've also created the ravager to destroy. No weapon that is fashioned against you shall succeed, and you shall refute every tongue that rises against you in judgment. This is the heritage of the servants of the Lord. And their vindication, in other words, there's righteousness, is from me, declares the Lord. What an incredible promise. And you're sitting there hearing that verse going, oh yeah, that's that no weapon form verse. And write that down, that's a good one. How many of you just think of uh, Ray Lewis in 2013 as he as he finally won that last Super Bowl, it's this crazy moment, and you hear, you hear him screaming, no weapon formed, just over and over. It's hilarious. There's lots of stories. <laughs> There's lots of stories and examples like this in sports, and I'm glad that Ray Lewis is reading scripture. But you just read it. Is that what it's saying? People misuse these texts all the time, and the way they do is just by pulling it out and making it say more than it's, than it's saying. God's saying, I'm the one, actually, who's making the one that's making the weapons. I'm guiding that part of history, and it's going to work out in your favor, not against it. I'm fully in control. No weapon that's made against you will be used against you. It's not going to work. Literally, what he's saying in here is, you don't need to be afraid of the other nations anymore. That, those days are done. Those weapons aren't against you anymore. This future city of yours, this glorious future, is secured. Any more attacks or attempts at oppressing you are just not going to work. You can bank on that. Church, we can trust the truth of God's word, and we can trust and bank on his promises. If it's true that our future, by, by the work of Christ on the cross, that our future contains this kind of beauty and security then that fact ought to change the way we live now, right? To keep a light hand on the things of this world. Remember what's ultimately temporary. And remember what's ultimately eternal. This is why Jesus says what he says in Matthew 6, 19. Don't lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth, uh, moths and rust destroy them. 
where thieves can break in and steal them? But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. There's apparently no moths in heaven, no rust, no thieves. Those treasures are secure. And here's what Jesus says. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be. Jesus wants your heart. That's the point. So two things for us today. One, to live with this heavenly city in mind. With a sense of it coming soon. Weigh everything through that reality and watch as your priorities and thinking shift. They change. Remember, no matter what you see on the horizon, God says, I can see a little farther and I see a bright future for you, Christian. Respond like the barren woman with joy. Joy. Now, I wonder if there's anyone in here feeling like the one described in verse 11. Afflicted. Oh, afflicted one. Maybe that's a a word of comfort for you. Oh, afflicted one. Storm-tossed, not comforted. Samuel Rutherford, who I quoted last time I preached, so I'm just going to be a Samuel Rutherford guy now. He says, your rock does not ebb and flow, but your sea. It's not God that's storm-tossed, unsure what to do. He's as solid as he's ever been. You're actually more like the wave, being tossed around, crashing up against it. And so if that's you, fix yourself to him. Fix yourself to that rock of Christ. Find your comfort in him. Remember that this promise to God's people points ahead to a greater promise for you and me today. This present reality, your present circumstance, what happened last week, what's coming your way this week, is not your ultimate future. You are not to stay here. Church, there's something of yours, Christian, in this heavenly city. That's amazing. So what do we do in light of God's word today? I'm going to steal a page out of next week's text. If you look at 55 verse 1, there's our call right there. What does it say? Come. Come. Come to the only waters that satisfy Come to the feast that you can't just buy your way into. Come to that. Church, be hungry for Jesus, for more and more of him. Taste and see that he's good. He will not disappoint. Don't wait. So come forward in repentance now. Let me pray. God, for this picture of the heavenly city, thank you. For this reminder, Lord, that your word is true and trustworthy and good and good. Thank you. Help us to now, by your spirit, begin to imagine this week. What does it look like to live out as if your kingdom is coming soon? What would change in our lives today if we knew that tomorrow you were coming? What would change? So, Lord, give us wisdom and discernment. This is a hard question to answer, and we need your spirit for that. But first, Lord, if there's any part of us that's holding back, by your spirit, just constrain us. Give us no choice but to come, like Isaiah 55, to just come. Come forward. Come and receive repentance. Help us to see sin for what it really is as leading towards death. It feels right in the moment sometimes, but Lord, our feelings are a terrible judge of truth. So Lord, when we're faced with our sin, and even now as your spirit is bringing our many sins to you to mind, Lord, help us to shun those things, to turn from those things, to say, Lord, we're sorry. We ran after him again. We did it again. And help us to turn back to you, God. Make us more hungry for you and your kingdom than we are for the things of this world. Lord, shape us into a people that lives with this imminent future in mind. And Lord, come quickly. In Jesus' name, amen. Every week we respond in these ways. We come forward and receive communion, and this is the act of repentance. We remember the body of Christ that was broken for us, for those sins. We remember his blood 
that was shed freely, given freely for us, represented by the juice or the wine. So when you come forward and receive, consider your sin, confess and repent back to a good father who says with open arms, come, come. We also sing during this time. And this isn't something we do to just transition you to leave. Sermon's done, let's do a song and then get him out of here. No, we sing because God's good. Just like the first verse in here, sing, sing. So we sing. We also give during this time. There's giving boxes in the back. You can give online. And then we pray. We pray in response because we don't have all the answers. We don't have it all together. We need each other. We need God. So we pray. If you'd like to, there'll be people on the side wings here ready to pray with you. If that feels too exposing, like, oh, I'm up front, everyone's looking at me, you can also text your prayer and know that there are a team of people that are praying for you, even right now. There's people praying in another room for you right now. How sweet is that? So text us your prayers and we'll pray for that. Uh, But come forward and, and let's respond, church.
send you from here, um, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 18, describes for a farmer utter devastation. There's no figs blossoming. There's no fruit on the vines. The produce of the olive fails. The fields yield no fruit. The flock is cut off. There's no herd in the stalls. And yet still, it says, verse 18, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. So church, live like the fruit is coming. God is coming soon, and until then, rejoice in the Lord this week. Take joy in the assurance of the God of your salvation. Go live all of life all for Jesus.